0: Section 6 of Police. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Police by Robert W. Chambers. The Third Eye. Part 4 toward midnight i could hear the roar of breakers on our starboard bow evelyn heard them too and sat up inquiringly grew has found the inlet to black bayou i suppose said i and it proved to be the case for with the surf thundering on either hand we sailed into a smoothly flowing inlet through which the flood tide was running between high dune all sparkling in the moonlight and crowned with shadowy palms Occasionally I heard noises ahead of us from the other boat, as though Kimper was trying to converse with us. But as his apropos was as unintelligible as it was unopportune, I pretended not to hear him. Besides, I had all I could do to maneuver the tiller and prevent Evelyn Gray from falling off backward into the bayou. Besides, it is not customary to converse with the man at the helm. After a while, during which I seemed to distinguish in Kemper's voice a quality that rhymes with his name, his tone varied through phases, all the way from irony to exasperation. After a while, he gave it up and took to singing. There was a moon, and I suppose he thought he had a voice. It didn't strike me so. After several somewhat melancholy songs, he let off his pistol two or three times and then subsided into silence. I didn't care, neither his songs nor his shots interrupted, but let that pass, also. We were now sailing into the forest through pool after pool of interminable lagoons, startling into unseen and clattering flight hundreds of waterfowl. I could feel the wind from their whistling wings in the darkness as they drove by us out to sea. It seemed to startle the prey waitress, it is a solemn thing to be responsible for a pretty girl's peace of mind i reassured her continually perhaps a trifle nervously but there were no more pistol shots perhaps kimper had used up his cartridge we were still drifting along under drooping sails borne inland almost entirely by the tide when the first pale watery gray light streaked the east when it grew a little lighter evelyn sat up All danger of sharks being over also i could begin to see what was going on in the other boat which was nothing remarkable kemper slumped against the mast his head turned in our direction grew sat at the helm motionless his tattered straw hat sagging on his neck when the sun rose i called out cheerily to kemper asking him how he had passed the night evelyn also raised her head Pausing while bringing her disordered hair under discipline to listen to his reply. But he merely mumbled something. Perhaps he was still sleepy. As for me, I felt exceedingly well, and when Gru turned his craft inshore, I did so too. And when, under the overhanging foliage of the forest, the nose of my boat grated on the sand, I rose and crossed the deck with a step distinctly frolicsome. Kemper seemed distant and glum evelyn gray spoke to him shyly now and then and i noticed she looked at him only when he was gazing elsewhere than at her she had a funny conciliatory air with him half ashamed partly humorous and amused as though something about kemper's sulky ill-humor was continually making tiny inroads on her gravity some mullet had jumped into the two boats half a dozen during our moonlight voyage and these were now being fried with rice for us by Gru. lord how i hated to eat them after we had finished breakfast Gru, as usual did everything to the remaining except to get into the fry pan with both feet and as usual he sickened me when he'd cleaned up everything i sent him off into the forest to find a dry shell mound for camping purposes then i made fast both boats and kemper and i carried ashore our paraphernalia spare batterie de cuisine firearm fishing tackle spares harpoon grains oars sails spars folding cage everything with which a strictly scientific expedition is usually burdened evelyn was washing her face in the crystal waters of a branch that flowed into the lagoon from under the live oaks She looked very pretty doing it, like a naiad or a dryad scrubbing away at her forest toilet. It was in fact such a pretty spectacle that I was going over to sit beside her while she did it, but Kemper started just when I was going to, and I turned away. Some men invariably do the wrong thing, but a handsome man doesn't last long with a pretty girl, i was thinking of this as i stood contemplating an alligator slide when Group came back saying that the shore on which we had landed was the termination of a shell mound and that it was the only dry place he had found so i bade him pitch our tents a few feet back from the shore and stood watching him while he did so One eye reverting occasionally to Evelyn Gray and Kemper. They both were seated cross-legged beside the branch, and they seemed to be talking a great deal and rather earnestly. I couldn't quite understand what they found to talk about so earnestly and volubly. All of a sudden, inasmuch as they had heretofore exchanged very few observations during a most brief and formal acquaintance, dating only from sundown the day before, grew set up our three tents. Carried the luggage inland, and then hung about for a while until the vast shadow of a vulture swept across the trees. I never saw such an indescribable expression on a human face as I saw on Gru's as he looked up at the huge, unclean bird. His vitreous eyes fairly glittered, the corners of his mouth quivered and grew wet, and to my astonishment, he seemed to emit a low, mewing noise. What the devil are you doing? I said impulsively, in my amazement and disgust. He looked at me, his eyes still glittering, the corners of his mouth still wet, but the curious sound had ceased. What? he asked. Nothing. I thought you spoke. I didn't know what else to say. He made no reply. Once, when I had partially turned my head, I was aware that he was warily turning his to look at the vulture, which has alighted heavily on the ground near the entrails and heads of the mullet, where he had cast them on the dead leaves. I walked over to where Evelyn Gray and Kemper sat so busily conversing, and their volubility ceased as they glanced up and saw me approaching, which phenomenon both perplexed and displeased me. I said, This is the Black Bayou Forest, and we have the most serious business of our lives before us. Suppose you and I start out, Kemper, and see if there are any traces of what we were after in the neighborhood of our camp. Do you think it's safe to leave Miss Grey alone in the camp? He asked gravely. I hadn't thought of that. No, of course not, I said. Gru can stay. I don't need anybody, she said quickly. Anyway... I'm rather afraid of Grew. Afraid of Grew? I repeated. Not exactly afraid, but he's unpleasant. I remain with Miss Gray," said Kemper politely. Oh! She exclaimed. I couldn't ask that. It is true that I feel a little tired and nervous, but I can go with you and Mr. Smith and Gru. I surveyed Kemper in cold perplexity, as chief of the expedition i couldn't very well offer to remain with evelyn gray but i didn't propose that kimber should either take a group he suggested and look about the woods for a while perhaps after dinner miss gray may feel sufficiently rested to join us i am sure she said that a few hours' rest in camp will set me on my feet all i need is rest i didn't sleep very soundly last night i felt myself growing red and i looked away from them ''Oh,'' said Kemper, in apparent surprise, ''I thought you had slept soundly all night long.'' ''Nobody,'' said I, ''could have slept very pleasantly during that musical performance of yours.'' ''Were you singing?'' she asked innocently of Kemper. ''He was singing when he wasn't firing off his pistol,'' I remarked. ''No wonder you couldn't sleep with any satisfaction to yourself.'' Gru had disappeared into the forest. I stood watching for him to come out again. After a few minutes, I heard a furious but distant noise of flapping. The others also heard it, and we listened in silence, wondering what it was. "'It's Gru killing something,' faltered Evelyn Gray, turning a trifle pale. "'Confound it!' I exclaimed. "'I'm going to stop that right now!' Kemper rose and followed me as I started for the woods. But as we passed the beached boats, Gru appeared from among the trees. Where have you been? I demanded. In the woods? Doing what? Nothing. There was a bit of down here and there clinging to his cotton shirt and trousers, and one had caught and stuck at the corner of his mouth. See here, Gru? I said. I don't want you to kill any birds except for camp purposes. Why do you try to catch and kill birds? I don't i stared at the man and he stared back at me out of his glassy eyes you mean to say that you don't somehow or other manage to catch and kill birds no i don't there was nothing further for me to say unless i gave him the lie i didn't care to do that need in his services evelyn gray had come up to join us there was a brief silence we all stood looking at Gru, and he looked back at us out of his pale washed-out and unblinking eyes Gru, I said. I haven't yet explained to you the object of this expedition to Black Bayou. Now, I'll tell you what I want. But first, let me ask you a question or two. You know the Black Bayou forests, don't you? Yes. Did you ever see anything unusual in these forests? No. Are you sure? The man stared at us one after another, then he said, What are you looking for in Black Bayou? Something very curious, very strange, very unusual. So strange and unusual, in fact, that the great zoological society of the Bronx in New York has sent me down here, at the head of this expedition, to search the forest of Black Bayou. For what? he demanded in a dull, accentless voice. For a totally new species of human being. Grow. I wish to catch one and take it back to New York in the folding cage. His green eyes had grown narrow as though sun dazzled, Kemper had stepped behind us into the woods and was now busy setting up the folding cage. Gru remained motionless. I am going to offer you, I said, the sum of one thousand dollars in gold if you can guide us to a spot where we may see this hitherto unknown species, a creature which is apparently a man but which has, in the back of his head, a third eye. I paused in amazement grew's cheeks had suddenly puffed out and were quivering and from the corners of his slittered mouth he was emitting a whimpering sound like the noise made by a low circling pigeon grew i cried what's the matter with you what is he doing screamed grew quivering from head to foot but not turning around who i cried the man behind me professor kemper he's setting up the folding cage With a screech that raised my hair, Gru whipped out his murderous knife and hurled himself backward at Kemper, but the latter shrank aside behind the partially erect cage, and Gru whirled around, snarling, hacking, and even biting at the wood frame and steel bars. And then occurred a thing so horrid that it sickened me to the pit of my stomach, for the man's sagging straw hat had fallen off, and there... In the back of his head, through the coarse black ratty hair, I saw a glassy eye glaring at me. Kemper! I shouted. He's got a third eye! He's one of them! Knock him flat with your rifle stock! And I seized a shotgun from the top of the bagage bundle, on the ground beside me, and leaped at Gru, aiming a terrific blow at him. But the glassy eye in the back of his head was watching me between the clotted strands of hair, and he dodged both Kemper and me, swinging his heavy knife in circles and glaring at us, both out of the front and back of his head. Kemper seized him by his arm, but Gru's shirt came off, and I saw his entire body was as furry as an ape's, and all the while he was snapping at us and leaping hither and thither to avoid our blows, and from the corners of his puffed cheeks he whined and whimpered and mewed through the saliva foam keep him from the water i panted following him with clubbed shotgun and as i advanced i almost stepped on a soiled heap of fullness the dead buzzard which he had caught and worried to death with his teeth suddenly he threw his knife at my head hurling it backward dodged screeched and bounded by me toward the shore of the lagoon where the prey waitress was standing petrified for one moment i thought he had her but she picked up her skirts ran for the nearest boat and seized the harpoon and in his fierce eagerness to catch her he leaped clear over the boat and fell with a splash into the lagoon as kemper and i sprang aboard and looked over into the water we could see him going down out of reach of a harpoon and his body seemed to be silver-plated flashing and glittering like a burnished eel so completely did the skin of air envelop him held there by the fur that covered him and as he rested for a moment on the bottom deep down through the clear waters of the lagoon where he lay prone i could see as the current stirred his long black hair the third eye looking up at us glassy unwinking horrible a bubble or two like globules of quicksilver were detached from the burnished skin of air that clothed him and came glittering upward suddenly, there was a flash, a flurrying cloud of blue mud and grew was gone after a long while. I turned around in the muteness of my despair and slowly froze for the pretty waitress, becomingly pale, was gathered in Kemper's arms, her cheeks against his shoulder, neither seemed to be aware of me, darling he said, in the imbecile voice of a man in love. Why do you tremble so when I am here to protect you? Don't you love and trust me? Oh, yes. She sighed, pressing her cheek closer to his shoulder. I shoved my hands into my pockets, passed them without noticing them, and stepped ashore, and there I sat down under a tree, with my back toward them, all alone and face to face with the greatest grief of my life. But which it was... The loss of her or the loss of Gru, I had not yet made up my mind. End of section 6. Recorded by Isam.